Progressive presents Forest Metaphors about bundling your home and auto. In sports, three goals is a hat trick. And when you bundle your home and auto with Progressive, you get a hat trick of great savings and round-the-clock protection. So you might be thinking, wait, that's two things. A hat trick is three. But in this metaphor, great savings counts as two goals and so does round-the-clock protection. So it's like four goals and that's more than three. It's basic math. Forced Metaphors, presented by Progressive. Bundle and protect today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discount not available in all states or situations. You coming to bed, hon? Yep, honey, I'll be right there. Just got to turn out the light. Ow! Ow! Some things never change. Like your kids always leaving tiny toys on the floor for you to step on. And Geico saving folks lots of money on their car insurance. Sweetie, I think I left the downstairs light on. Please don't make me go. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. All right, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Proverbs chapter 18. The book of Proverbs chapter 18. I'm just going to read one verse. It's verse number 16. Proverbs chapter 18, verse number 16. We're going to look at it at two different versions here. Very familiar passage of Scripture but often taken out of context. Um, I, I'm just going to just address that today, that the fact is that often we quote this verse as saying our spiritual gifts make room for us. Well, this is not at all what it's talking about. All right? This is taking the verse out of context. That's why you need to enroll in the Ignite School of Ministry so you can learn how to do sound exegesis. All right. Okay, we do have a hermeneutics unit coming up. All right, just kidding. A man's gift makes room for him and brings him before great men. The next translation, the NIV says, a gift opens the way and ushers the giver into the presence of the great. What is it talking about? What is he addressing? Well, I want to just share with you a story. Several years ago, about 12 years ago to be precise, I was invited to go to a place in Nigeria, Africa, called the Niger Delta. And the Niger Delta is an area that was, what they said, under crisis. It was in a crisis. And it was being ruled, actually, under martial law because the oil companies, the multinational oil companies, had moved into that area and would per- was just taking the oil and, and just like you wouldn't believe at a rate that you couldn't even imagine. And so the local people, by and large, the ones who actually owned the land and lived there, were being bypassed, neglected, and exploited. As a result of this happening year after year after year, uh, some of the people said, enough is enough. We've tried to negotiate with the oil companies, with the government. It's not working. So a group of these men rose up known as militants, and they began to um, take hostage to kidnap Westerners, particularly those from the, who worked for the oil companies. And so as a result of the tension there, many of the businesses left, many of the shops closed down, and it, it, as I said, it, it became a city, an area, a region, actually, that was being ruled by the government, by the military. Well... I didn't know the full extent of what was going on, and I was just invited by a pastor that I had met to come and preach right in the heart of all of this. So we flew from Toronto, Canada to Lagos, Nigeria, then eventually Lagos, Nigeria, down to a city called Wari in Delta State. On the flight, 
from Toronto to Lagos, I was speaking with a Nigerian man, and he asked me, he said, where are you going in Nigeria? And I said, oh, I'm going to, um, to, to the Delta state, to the Delta region. And he looked at me and he said, you are a brave man. I said, oh, no, what have I got myself into? So eventually, after flights being delayed and flights being canceled and sitting in an airport in Lagos for over 12 hours already, jet lagged, already tired, um, we were able to catch a flight down to Wari. And when we got off there, we journeyed uh, quite, a, quite a distance into the community to where we would be staying. And as we pulled into the community, I noticed it was very quiet. Just an eerie sense of stillness there. And then I looked, and there were soldiers dug in. I mean, they were fortified. They were dug in on the streets. And then we're driving by, and I'm looking, and there on rooftops were snipers. Wow, I'm in an amazing place. No wonder this man said to me, you're brave. I said, more like I'm foolish. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. Well, we made it peacefully and safely to our our hotel, which basically had a 10-meter wall that had wire on it. It was fortified, and inside there were soldiers and armed guards with, you know, machine guns. And so here we are, tired, jet-lagged, and we, we go to sleep. And the next morning we wake up, have breakfast, and our first meeting with the local pastors. And we're discussing our agenda for that day. First item that we needed to fulfill was meeting with the local Olu, or king. The king in that area actually was a Christian. But the custom was, if you want to go and minister or preach the gospel in that area, protocol really mandated that you meet with the king and you secure his blessing. I was briefed in advance what that meeting would look like and what I needed to, to do in terms of preparing myself. And, and I was told by a well-known uh, minister who travels extensively to Africa and has met with many kings. He said to me, this is what you, you need to do. You need to come with a gift. And you need to bring a gift, first of all, of money, cash. U.S. dollars, make sure it's U.S. dollars. It doesn't have to be a lot, but you have to bring a cash gift. Then I would recommend that you bring perhaps two other gifts, very unique gifts, something that a king who is living in Nigeria maybe would never experience before. So, of course, I packed away, with Lynn's help, maple syrup biscuits. I mean, come on, what king in Nigeria has ever eaten maple syrup biscuits? So I went there, and the next day we entered into the king's palace, guards everywhere in the inner room. The king actually had a church in his palace, believe it or not. Full-time pastor that was employed by the king. And so we went in there, we began to speak to the king, and we, we addressed him with, with honor and dignity and respect. You know, we were told when you leave the king's presence, you don't turn your back and walk out. You walk out like this because that's very disgraceful. Different things that we had to learn. 
And so as we approached the king and we, we told him our intentions and we gave him the gifts and we honored him and we respected him, it ended, that meeting ended with the king blessing us and giving us permission and saying that he would even help gather the people so that we could preach the gospel to them. It was an amazing time, and we actually ended up preaching later on to over 50,000 people gathered. Saw thousands of people come to Jesus. Many miracles take place. It was an amazing time. But you know, it's true that a man's gifts makes room for him and brings him before great men. It's true that a gift opens the way and ushers the giver into the presence of the great. Our God is a great king. He's greater than any Ulu in Nigeria. He's greater than any king or president or prime minister or queen, any dignitary in this world. He's greater and he deserves even greater honor and respect. And yet, interesting, even though God owns everything, even though God has access to everything and there's nothing that he lacks. He still tells us that when we approach him, we are not to come before him empty-handed, but that we must bring a gift. Deuteronomy 16, verse 16 and 17. No one should appear before the Lord empty-handed. Each of you must bring a gift in proportion to the way the Lord your God has blessed you. Now think about this. God doesn't need anything from us. It's not that he requires a gift. We're not pacifying him. We're not bribing him. The king that I met with, you know, at the end of our meeting, he actually personally gave us several thousand dollars. He didn't need the financial gift. My gift was quite meager in comparison to what he gave to us. But it was the point that the gift reflects a, 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 an attitude of honor, respect, and worship. It's not the value of the gift. It's not how much the gift was. And it wasn't even that, that the giver was in need of it, but it was an act of worshiping. It was an act of approaching this king with, with respect and, and saying, King, because of who you are and, and what you can do, we want to acknowledge that you're a great person and we want to be in favor with you and we want to show you how much we appreciate you. How we approach God determines what we receive from him. It's true. How we approach God determines what we receive from him. You know, there's scriptures, in, particularly in the book of Hebrews, that talk about how we can come boldly before the throne of God. Come with confidence. Come with assurance before the throne of God. And we love those scriptures, don't we? And, and they're, they're true, and God implores us and he, to this great privilege to be able to come before him, to obtain mercy and grace in our time of need, to access with confidence and boldness his throne of grace. But there's another side to this as well. Our God is a great king. He expects us to approach him with a gift, a sacrifice. He wants us to come before him with something in our hands. We dare not approach him empty-handed. And so many people just casually come before God without preparing themselves, without 
you know, making sure they understand the magnitude of, of who he is and, and how he expects in no uncertain terms that we come before him with something in our hands. And for Israel, as we've just read in Deuteronomy 16, they were actually required to come before God three times a year, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And every male was to bring to God a sacrifice. They were to bring to God a gift and they would not and could not come before God empty-handed. Your offering, your worship, would not be accepted if you came empty-handed. It required something that cost that person. There was a requirement that whatever we give costs us something. David said, I will not give God anything if it doesn't cost me. If it's not a sacrifice, I'm not going to come before him. There's a principle here that in the New Testament, of course, we don't offer sacrifices. We don't have a temple in the literal sense. We don't sacrifice animals. We don't give grain offerings and so on. But we still offer ourselves as sacrifices. We are the sacrifice. We are to offer ourselves to God. I love the Romans 12 verse 1 in the Passion Translation. This is what it says. Beloved friends... What should be our proper response to God's marvelous mercies? Think about that. In view of all that God has done, Paul is saying here, he's looking back over the the previous 11 chapters in Romans, and he's saying, in light of everything that God has done and how he's made salvation available to us, how he's enabled us to be holy and, and to have the power of the Holy Spirit operating in our lives so we can live an overcoming life, how he's done all these things and blessed us and grafted us into his kingdom in view of all of what he's done, what should our response be? Good question, right? Is it not only reasonable to expect someone to say thank you when we give them a gift? I think it's not from my perspective of, that I need to hear thank you, but from the perspective of that person Their personal appreciation of what I've given them is expressed. And when we come before God, there is even a sense in which God says thank you to us. Did you know that? It's amazing. He blesses us. He opens up our access into the very realms He invites us into his palace, so to speak, where we can come before him and and approach his throne. He says, I give you access. I extend my scepter. You can do this. You can go here. I'll provide. I'll, I'll do whatever is needed so that you can fulfill my agenda. But our sacrifices, the gift that we're to bring before God is our very lives, according to Romans 12, verse 1, that our proper response to God's marvelous mercies is to rent, to surrender ourselves to God, to be his sacred living sacrifices. And we're to live in holiness, experiencing all that delights his heart. Do you know there's things that delight God's heart? 
It's very simple. Why does God want us to come before his throne of grace? Why does he want us to bring him a gift? Why does he say, don't come before me empty-handed? Because there's something that we can give to him that delights his heart. And it reciprocates in us being blessed, but in also experiencing the delight of the king. When the Bible talks about how when we pray in secret and the Lord rewards us openly, do you know what that is? Jesus exemplifies that in his ministry. Here he is. In, here he is seeking God. He's in the place, the private place. He's ministering to God. And time after time, you see the favor of God on his life. The smile of God upon him and what he's doing. At least twice in the Gospels, we're told that a voice, the voice of God himself spoke and said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. I delight in him. Behold my messenger in whom I take delight. You see, God wants us to recognize that he desires that we commune with him, that we approach him in such a way that it delights his heart so that he can reciprocate that, he can pour that back to us. Prayer that is simply approaching God and saying, God, I need this, I need that. Where are you? Why don't you care? Why am I going through this? Has no understanding of the of this sacredness that God calls us to when we approach him. What if I walked into that king, to that Olu, and I said to him, King, we need to preach the gospel here. You better give us what we want. If you don't give us what we want... You probably aren't going to. You're probably not interested. How would he respond? He'd be like, guards, take this guy out. Escort him out of here. He's crazy. He's disrespectful. He's rude. But yet when it comes to God, he's a great king. He's greater than any other king. And we are to approach him with dignity. There's a scripture in Malachi chapter 1. The children of Israel had been complaining that God wasn't answering their prayers. Why aren't you answering our prayers? Why aren't you fulfilling your promises? Where are you, God? Why is it that the wicked seem to be prospering, but here we are, your people, and we're suffering? And God answers them over the next three chapters. And the first item to discuss with his people is the sacrifice that they were offering to him. And he tells them clearly, when you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty. Then when we drop down to verse number 14, the Lord says, cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. Wow. He's a greater king. Try giving the Olu of Nigeria a sacrifice that clearly expressed 
that it was just a half-hearted thing. There was no value. There was no consideration. There was no planning or preparation in the gift. There was no, no foresight. What would he say? If I just walked up to him and I, and I said, oh, good, good afternoon, King. So nice to meet you. Um, oh, yeah. What do I have? Is there something? Oh, I've got an Ignite Church pen. <laughs> um, would you receive this as a gift? What, what, what does that say? What does that say? No preparation, no plan. Yet the Bible tells us that there were kings in the Old Testament that prospered because they prepared their heart. They prepared their heart. If you were to sow, a, you were to sow seed expecting a harvest, but you didn't prepare the ground, that's ludicrous. That would never happen. If you just randomly just walk out and say, I'm expecting a great harvest this year, and you just through this, you know, uh, inadvertently threw seed in different places, and you expected that you would have this great harvest. That's absolute stupidity. But that's how we approach God. God, you know my heart. Oh, you, yeah, oh, you know, you, you know my heart. I've been busy. I, I, and, and we just come before him without preparing ourselves. We come before him empty-handed, or at the very best, we come before him offering a lame sacrifice. And the question that we, we look here is, why was it that God was so upset with them? Well, as we've just read in verse 14, is the fact is, is that they had an acceptable meal. They had a, 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 an offering that was not blemished. But yet they chose to retain that for themselves and give God the leftovers. Give God what was blemished. And God says, cursed. You know, there's this principle in the Old Testament. It's called first fruits. Do you know what first fruits means is when they would bring in the harvest before they could use any of the harvest for themselves. They had to set aside the initial part of that harvest as a first fruit offering. And God says, don't you dare eat it until you offer it to me first. Now, we can, I can go and I can start talking about tithing and giving offerings, and there's a principle to that today. But what, there's truth to that, but I want to go deeper than that this morning. Because the Pharisees gave their tithes and offerings, but yet their lives were not fully surrendered to God. You cannot give yourself fully to God and it not affect your finances as we're about to see. But you can give your finances to God and still your life is not surrendered to Him. There's so many people that do that. So many people that say, well, you know, I put money in the offering and, and I give and I do this and, and, and you know what? And God looks at it and, and he says, look, it's a blemished offering. It's not acceptable to me because it didn't come from a pure heart. It didn't come from a life that's fully surrendered. It didn't come from a person who delights to do my will. I'm a great king. I'm a great king, he says. Try offering that to your governor. Try offering that to your local political leader. Try offering that to whomever and see what they would say about it. Understand the, the culture of that time that offerings were, these type of offerings were, were definitely part of the culture. And you would not approach 
a king in the natural, a governor, or a, an official in the natural, and offer him a blemished sacrifice. He wouldn't do that. He'd take one look at it and say, what is this? What is this? This is not acceptable. I'm not accepting this. And we look at this particular story in Malachi 1 and we say, what is it that God was after? Let me say something. God was not after the best. God was not after the best. God was after their best. What I mean by that is this. Some of us, we look at other people and we say, I wish I could give like that person is able to give. I wish I could preach like that person could preach. I wish I could lead worship like that person leads worship or whatever it is. And we, we look at that and we say, I wish I could. And, you know, and God's saying, that's not at all even part of what it's all about. And what I'm looking for is not whether you can outdo someone else, but what I'm looking for is, are you giving your best? Is it your best? And the fact of the matter is, when you look at this story in Malachi, another thing that we need to address is the people might say to God, but God, we are giving you a better sacrifice than we've ever done before. And God would look at them and say, it's not a case of whether it's better than what you've done in the past, but is it your very best now? Oh, it's, I have never given this much. I've never prayed this much. I've never served this much. I've never, never walked in, in such a place with God. And the truth is, yes, we're growing. I understand that there is a level of going from faith to faith and trusting Him more and more. But the truth is, are we actually giving God our very best? Are we giving Him our very best? If not, it's a blemish tainted sacrifice and He's not acceptable to him. You see, he's a great king, and he requires that his people come before him in fear and trembling, that his people approach him. I didn't walk into that room with, with the Olu of Nigeria and go, hey, king, what up, man? High five. <laughs> Obviously, he would have looked at me like, who is this guy? Now, if I was his friend, perhaps down the road I might be able to, I don't know, joke with him a little bit. But the truth is, I couldn't approach him that way. And I understand there's a lot of teaching and preaching today about God is our friend and he's our father and he's our daddy, but he's also a great king. He's also a holy God and he requires that we worship him in spirit and in truth and that we come before him in the beauty of holiness to worship him. What is God really after? What is the sacrifice? Jesus nailed it. Jesus quoting Moses. Uh, someone came, a, a man came before Jesus actually to test him. Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? What's the greatest commandment? Jesus said, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And what? And you are to love him with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. This is the most important commandment Jesus said. Love your neighbors yourself is, is attached to it. We recognize this. Jesus said it's the most important commandment. In fact, all the law and prophets hinge 
upon the fulfillment of loving God with all your heart, soul, and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself. If we do that, we fulfill God's law in every area. So Jesus says, you got to love him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Very interesting. It's not only the most important commandment, but it's also the key to sustained favor. I love what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 9 through 10. It says that God keeps his covenant in steadfast love with those who love him, those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. But he repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. That's strong, isn't it? But God, what? Blesses to a thousand generations, those who love him. We know that all things work together for good to those who want Love the Lord. Love God is what Jesus said. And Jesus told us elsewhere in John chapter 14, if you love me, you keep my commandments. Then in the same chapter, he said, he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he that loves me. In 1 John, the writer is very strong. He says, if you say you love God, but you don't keep his commandments, you are a liar. That's strong, but it's truth. Hey, I love God. Do you keep his commandments? No. Are you violating his laws? Are you living outside of the realm of grace? Then no matter what you say with your mouth, it's in vain. God looks at our heart. He doesn't say, this is what I require, that you go to church, that you praise my name, that you throw money in the offering. He said, I require of my people that they love me with all their heart, with all their soul, and with all their strength. He's this holy God. He's the supreme king. You see, love the Lord your God with all, with all, everything. What does that mean? We're to love him with everything. Some have called this the all command because of the threefold all. Love him with all your heart. Love him with all your soul. Love him with all your strength. Now, this is the key to preparing ourselves to come before the throne of the king. Just as in the natural, I had to prepare myself to approach this king so in the spiritual sense, we must approach ourselves, we must prepare ourselves to approach our king. And how do we do that? It starts with our heart, it affects our soul, and it also affects our strength. Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. What does it mean to love God with all your heart? Well, in the Old Covenant, Moses summons God's people to know in your heart that God disciplines like a father his son. He urges them to lay it to heart that there's no God besides Yahweh and to make sure that his words be on their heart. Everything starts with the heart. It says in Proverbs that the heart... Literally from that flows 
the issues. Out of the heart is the issues of life. Everything starts at the heart. It starts to here internally is what he was saying. You have to love God in your heart. It begins from within. Without our will, our desires, our affections, our passions, our perceptions, and our thoughts rightly aligned, loving God is impossible. Can't be done. Can't be done. Loving God, our will. What about our will? Is our will surrendered to him? Are we willing to do his will? Are we doing his will? What about our desires? What about our affections? Is it pleasing to God? Is he okay with the things that we love? I know, and I've said this many times, that when I first got saved, people said to me, well, you know, when you, when you come to Jesus, I remember the pastor, and I was all messed up, and, and the pastor approached me, and he said, well, you know what? When you come to God, you're going to have to stop doing that. You're going to stop doing that. You can't do that anymore. And I, I looked at him and, and I said, yeah, you're right. I understand that. I, I know that God would not be pleased with me continuing to live that way if I really made Jesus my Lord and Savior. But what I've come to learn since that is, is God just doesn't say, okay, if you want to come to me, clean up your life first. Stop this and, and, and then, then I'll accept you. Then I'll take you. That's not the way it works. God takes us in our brokenness. He takes us with all of our struggles, with all of our desires and our impurity and our, our ill motives and all of these things. And he begins to change us from the inside out. As we begin to love him, as we begin to learn how to draw near to him and, and appreciate his grace and goodness and cling to him, he begins to change us from the inside out. And what happens is, this is what I said, is the things that we used to love, we hate, and the things we used to hate, we end up loving. <laughs> he changes us from the inside out. So good. Our hearts, our affections, our passions, our perceptions, and our thoughts. So God says, it starts with the heart. Let me change you. But let me not just change you on in the inside, change your heart. And but guess what, guys? Jesus put it this way. He said, you know, the Pharisees, all they do is they focus on the outward. They want to appear good to men. They want to appear holy. They pray to be seen by men. They, they, they have this ostentatious faith in which they're just looking for people to say, oh, man, you're so spiritual. You're so anointed. You're so holy, Mr. Pharisee. And the truth is that Jesus said, outwardly, you're like a whitewashed sepulcher. You're like a whitewashed tombstone. You look good on the outside, but what about the inside? You're full of dead men's bones and iniquity. That's what Jesus said. And he said, oh, foolish Pharisee, foolish Pharisee. You don't even understand what God expects of you, Pharisee. You focus on the outward and appearing good, but you've not addressed your heart. Your heart is corrupt and wicked and defiled before God. What you do in secret, God knows. Who we are in secret when there's just you and just God, that's who we really are, guys. That's who we really are. Okay, foolish Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup. Then the outside will be clean. Right? Hey, I'll drink from a cup that's dirty on the outside. Well, you're not going to catch me drinking from a cup that's dirty on the inside. God says it starts in our hearts. It's our heart. Is it right? Do we honor him inwardly? Our passions, our desires, our values, our will, our affections, all of these things. Then the Lord says, I want you to love me with all your soul. 
Very interesting, the word soul in the first five books of the, the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy, is the Hebrew word nefesh. And it literally means the entire person, the entire being. God saying in Genesis 2 that he made man and he breathed into him and man became a living soul is what it says. So soul speaks of who we are, the entire person in other words. So Moses starts with a call to love God from within. Then he moves one step larger, saying that everything about us as a person is to declare him as Lord. Everything. Starts in here, but now the way you're living. Everything about you. Your passion, your perception, your thoughts, all of that is good. But I want you to love me with what you listen to, with how you talk, by how you work by how you interact with people. I want you to glorify me with your entire life. Every part of you has to glorify me. This is what it means to love him with all our soul. Then lastly, he says, love me with all your strength. Some translations say might. It's very interesting because if you look at this in the Greek, the word that is translated strength or might is actually the Greek word dunamis, which is power. Love God with all your power. In the Aramaic translations, you know what it says, guys? Love God with all your wealth. Wow. Love God with all your strength. Love God with all your power. Love God with all your wealth. Love God with everything that you are and also every area of influence that you have in your life. So the strength of a person is not simply who he is, but what he has at his disposal. In other words, we're called to love God with our strength, our wealth, our resources, and our influence. Our strength, our wealth, our resources, and our influence. That's how we're to love God. Wow, isn't that amazing? What influence do you have? What resources do you have? All of these are to be made available to love God by my, I'm going to use my influence. If you have a position, use it, your influence, to glorify God. If you have money that you can use to influence people for the gospel, to influence the kingdom of God, then do that. Use everything about you to influence God. That's what it means to love him with all your strength. Second Kings 23, 25, Neither before him, speaking of Josiah, was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did with his heart and with all his soul and with all his strength in accordance with the law of Moses. There was no one like Josiah that loved God with all his heart, soul, and strength. You see, Jesus exemplified this, didn't he? Jesus loved God from his heart, Jesus' life was a living sacrifice, and Jesus used his influence and all that he had, his miraculous powers, to the purpose of extending the kingdom of God. That's what he did. And I love the way Jesus prayed. We're talking about prayer and what it means to approach the throne of God and, and, and receive his favor on our lives. Come on, guys. God's not like a liar, God's not like telling us, you need to do this and I'll do that. And then, you know, he dangles the carrot and we jump and he pulls the carrot back. That's not our God. Our God is a good God. He's pro his, his word is true. He never lies. 
But if God says, if you come before me, I'll answer you. But when he speaks about that, there's always these conditions of what it means to approach God. And when you're a sinner, when you don't know Jesus, it's not really a difficult thing to experience a miracle in your life because God proves himself to you. But after he gets a hold of our life, he teaches us how to approach his throne. This is how you come before me. And Jesus, because he knew how to approach the throne of God, always saw the Father answer from his throne. I love this. John eleven forty one and 42. Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me and I, I knew that you always hear me. What is he doing? He's standing outside Lazarus' tomb. He's about to call Lazarus to come forth, a dead man. And before he even calls Lazarus, before the miracle happens, he lifts up his eyes and he says, Father, I thank you that you, you've heard me and I thank you that you always hear me. Wow. What amazing confidence. So what do we, what does Jesus say? Look at Romans 8, I'm sorry, John chapter 8, verse 29. The one who sent me is with me. He's not left me alone. The Father's presence is always with me. He's not left me alone. Why? For I always do what pleases him. The tr- Passion Translation, I am his messenger, and he, is, and he is always with me, for I only do that which delights his heart. That's what it says in the Greek. For I only do that which delights his heart. Isn't that amazing? I only do that which delights his heart. So what about us? Listen, we say, well, no, God is a God of grace. We don't have to do anything. He just loves us and he answers our prayers. And, and you know what? And, and if we had to do anything to receive an answer to our prayer, that would be legalism. Right? Have you heard that? Right, when the church doesn't like something, we cry legalism. That's what Leonard Ravenhill said many years ago. But look at this. 1 John chapter 3, verse 21 and 22. I guess John, the apostle of love, was a legalist because he said, Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask. Why? Because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. Simple, isn't it? We keep his commands and do what pleases him. Wow. We approach his throne. As in the natural, a king requires that people would approach him with respect, with honor, with preparation, adhering to protocol. So when it comes to God, we have to approach his throne properly, prepare ourselves. When we come before God, our minds decluttered, all the stuff, we're walking in that place. Sometimes I recognize that. It maybe takes a little bit of time of worship and prayer to get rid of that. But we're coming before him to connect with him, to worship him, not to punch, you know, the, the, just to do check in or, or, or punch cards and, and do our time with God. It's about communing with him. And if we prepare our hearts, if it starts from the inside, if our lives are, are being a sacrifice to him by how we're living, if we're using our influence, if we're using our resources, if we're using our position, if we're using all that God has made available to us, the spiritual gifts as well, then this is truly what worship is when we love God with all our heart, soul, and strength. Amen? How do we approach him? He's a great king. We come before him prepared. We don't approach him empty-handed. When we bring a gift to him, that gift is our lives. Holy, sanctified, separated, living sacrifices. God, you know everything about me. You know who I am. You know what I do. Clean it up. Clean it up. Clean it up. If you're not living right, clean it up. 
If there's stuff in your heart, if there's stuff in your mind, if there's things you're doing that you shouldn't be doing, clean it up. Clean it up. God will give you the grace. He'll set you free. If you've got bitterness or anger towards someone, let it go. Let God take that out of you. You can't come before his throne. The Bible says that if you have something against your brother and you come to give worship God at the altar, leave your gift at the altar and then go and be reconciled with your brother first. You see, there's a place where we have to prepare ourselves. We have to prepare ourselves because we prepare ourselves. God says he strengthens us. He uses us. He, he answers us. Because we've come before him not haphazardly, not flippantly, not without any type of preparation, but we come before him ready, ready to worship, ready to serve. Our lives are the sacrifices that he desires. Let me just close in prayer. Let's stand together. Switch to Spectrum Mobile and get unlimited data for only $29.99 per month each when you get two or more lines. You could save hundreds on your mobile bill. Plus, there are no added taxes, hidden fees, and no contracts. Click to try the Spectrum Mobile Savings Calculator, and in three easy steps, you'll see how much you could save. Visit SpectrumMobile.com save. Offer valid for new customers on two or more unlimited lines. Spectrum Internet required. Restrictions apply. Visit SpectrumMobile.com for details.